Welcome to Season 5. Four years ago, on New Year's Day, I published the first episode of the podcast. I had no real expectations for it. I honestly didn't know if anyone would listen, or would even care about what I had to say. But the idea had been in the back of my mind for years, slowly building shape. Once I officially committed to creating a podcast centered around Star Wars and collecting, I worked on it every day for six months. I was excited to share it with other collectors. In the world of collecting Star Wars memorabilia, the excavators of information and the light bearers of knowledge have been our peers, our fellow collectors, and that phenomenon has occurred for decades. Steve Sansweet, one of the first notable Star Wars enthusiasts, penned Star Wars from concept to screen to collectible in 1992, and it sparked a focus on hunting for the prototypes and production pieces from the era of the original trilogy that continues to this day. The website, the Star Wars Collector's Archive, was also created by some of the early collectors, and ones who were responsible for discovering and identifying a majority of the pre-production items that survived from the Kenner years. The entries on the site provided images you couldn't see anywhere else, straight from the collectors who owned these rare treasures. And each entry was accompanied by a detailed write-up by those who had the ability of translating the history and importance of these pieces into a language that the rest of us could comprehend. And they updated these accounts when new information would surface. And before the advent of social media, online forums like Rebel Scum became virtual toy shops where collectors could hang out and discuss the discoveries and current events of the hobby on a daily basis. And again, knowledgeable and passionate collectors shared information freely with one another and with people they had never met in person. But one of the most amazing parts of the hobby is the personal connections that happen beyond our digital screens. More collectors opted to attend in-person events and to arrange group meetups around Star Wars and toy-themed conventions like Celebration. And as the era of the online forum shifted toward the era of Facebook and collecting groups within the realm of social media, the community grew and grew closer. Many Star Wars collectors joined local clubs. They opened their homes to friends and strangers. They made swag to commemorate these unique experiences. And they participated in some of the most memorable moments the hobby offered. As a collector, I was so inspired by all of this. I wanted to grab a torch, catch some of that fire, and contribute to the community in a meaningful way. I wanted to continue the sharing of information and hope to bring new details about collecting to others. I wanted to record the special moments from the conventions, the toy shows, and the meetups. I wanted the episodes to serve as audio scrapbooks for those who were there. And for those who couldn't attend, I wanted the episodes to make them feel like they had been right there with us. Most of all, I wanted you to get to know the people who make our community and collecting so meaningful and so enjoyable. So many hobbies are done in isolation, and Star Wars collecting is one of those rare ones that actively goes beyond the collectibles and opens doors to more personal connections. 
And so, exactly four years ago, on New Year's Day, I published the first episode of the podcast, hoping it would be an enjoyable, educational, and connective audio experience for you and for our collecting friends. This past year, I published 49 episodes. And in many ways, the podcast was a lens through which I was able to view a larger scope of the world of collecting. Recently, I've revisited these episodes as part of a final look back on 2022. Some recapped the club meetups and toy shows I was fortunate to attend. Others recounted the events like Celebration and the Cincinnati Toy Show Weekend, but were done through the experiences of our fellow collectors when I couldn't be there with them. Some focused on the modern Hasbro toys and prototypes, while many highlighted the impact and collectibles of the original Kenner era. And as this past year ushered in a new wave of collectors, some of the memorabilia from the past 40 years reached peak prices previously unseen. I had the chance to sit with those who created the action figures, as well as those who collected them, who wrote about them, who published books on them, and who are now creating toys of their own. And if you join me along the way, you and I had the opportunity to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Empire State Star Wars Collectors Club, as well as the decade of Star Wars under Disney. And we went back in time to the incredible weekend of the 2019 annual event in New York, and then returned to Fishkill for this year's sequel. We also learned about the history of the Obi-Wan and Andor series, sat for a chat with the Ahsoka-holics, and explored Hasbro's HasLab project and the definitive book on the vintage collection. And we ended the year with a December Sithmas celebration. So rather than recap the year by recounting the news, I wanted to do something different. I thought it would be fun to look back through the months according to the episodes published during each one. The podcast was a blessing during the year. It was both a record of my collecting experience and a window to the robust world that many of us traverse together. This is part one of a recap of a year that gave us new adventures, new series, and new moments from a galaxy far, far away. This is a look back on the first half of 2022, from a collector's perspective. This is saying farewell to Season 4, and welcoming a new season with open arms. This is the start of Season 5. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Force and become a Jedi like my father. The 
force will be with you always. January. The first and only episode released in January highlighted Hasbro's initiative to give collectors a toy Kenner never produced. At some point toward the end of 2021, I began working on a new series titled The History of Hasbro's HasLab. The HasLab project was Hasbro's crowdfunded venture in which the company would offer a high-dollar Star Wars toy that wouldn't be released to stores and only would be produced if it reached a certain number of backers within a specific time frame. HasLab began in 2018, and the katana, Jabba's sail barge, was the inaugural offering. The ship spanned more than four feet in length and was the most expensive toy produced for the three and three quarter inch Star Wars line, coming in at $500. But the project was a very special one. It was the last major piece designed by Mark Boudreau before he retired. Mark had worked on the Millennium Falcon at Kenner in 1978 and had a hand in every iteration Hasbro created during his 43 years as a Star Wars toy designer. For fans, the katana was something they never thought they'd own. And for Mark, it was a chance to make that wish a reality before he closed that chapter of his life as a toy designer. So the first episode of the year began the first chapter in the history of the HasLab series, telling the story behind how Jabba's sail barge entered the toy line, and how backers put it over the top and into production. With the episode, I decided to challenge myself to give you an experience you couldn't get anywhere else. Instead of describing the sail barge, I wanted to use the magic of audio to walk you through the ship and to try to bring the tour to life. It was one of the toughest things I've done for the podcast up to that point. But it was a joyous exercise. I remember hunting through my house for pans and pots and other objects to get the sound effects I needed just right. And the hardest part was arranging them on screen to recreate how I imagined each room to sound. Whether you're a vintage or modern collector... The HasLab sail barge is really that bridge between two worlds. It is the dream fulfilled for those who grew up watching Return of the Jedi and longing to recreate scenes from Han's rescue. And for modern collectors, it showed what Hasbro was capable of producing when the designers are truly able to let their imaginations chart the course. If you've never listened to the episode, I would wholly recommend it. And if you listened to it sometime in the past year, I'd recommend going back and listening to it again. I think it captures the magic of Star Wars toys, and is one of those perfect moments in which a product surpasses the consumer's expectations. And now, I'd like to revisit the tour of the sail barge with you, to give you a taste of January's episode. I think the experience works best in headphones, and if possible, with your eyes closed and your imagination fully engaged. Let's walk through the katana as part of episode 68, The History of Hasbro's HasLab, Jabba's crowdfunded sail barge soars. I think now would be a good time to take a tour of the katana. After all, for someone backing this project at $500, it had better be worth the price. And fortunately, I'm able to shrink us down to three and three quarter inch height, 
So we'll see what an action figure sees through the eyes of those with immense imaginations. I've never done this before, but I feel confident it will work. Do you mind if I shrink you down as well so you can join me? Great. I'm just going to push this remote, which is tied to that shrinking ray over there. We're going to start our tour at the front of the barge, so if you could lean over it a little bit, we'll both fall into the cockpit. Actually, that was easier than I thought. I barely felt a thing. Growing up, I was always the smallest kid in my class, but this is on an entirely different level. Okay, so we're in the cockpit right now. I'll sit down here in one of the two gold frame driver seats, and each one has a two-handled joystick-like steering wheel in front of it. A console with screens surrounds us, with words in the Huttese language. The walls behind us are a dusty brown, with gray control panels. The cockpit is a Lucasfilm licensed design, created by Mark Boudreau for the toy, since it was never shown in Return of the Jedi. The attention to detail is incredible, even down to the gold one-eyed statues on the walls behind the driver's seats, which are reminiscent of the gargoyle statues on Jabba's throne. I'll put the barge on autopilot, and we can walk through the open door behind us to start the tour. On our left is a closed jail cell to hold prisoners on the barge. The door to the cell doesn't open. Rather, the entire wall is a panel that slides to the right to reveal the inside of the cell. The floor and the walls leading into the cell are a brush-painted copper. It's a little dark in here, but I can see an actual metal chain with a collar on it coming from the back wall, presumably for a prisoner. It's empty, but if I turn on my trusty flashlight... Oh, wow. In the far left corner of the cell are the skeletal remains of an Ithorian. Think Hammerhead from the cantina scene in Star Wars, who's been left here way too long. Let's leave him be. Here, if you can give me a hand with this panel, we'll shut the cell and move on. Right next to the cell, again to our left, is what appears to be a galley, basically a small kitchen on a ship. Where the wall cuts in is a base of L-shaped wood cabinets. Above them are what appears to be a stove and a sink. Against the back wall is a rack, with three frog-like creatures hanging from it, ready to be prepared for Jabba's next meal. Oh, I think you accidentally turned the sink on. I'll shut it. Oops, that was the button for the stove. Here's the button for the sink. Walking past the galley, we see a larger room with two staircases leading to the top deck. Oh, wow, look at the back wall. There are axes hanging up, and there are racks to store vibrostaffs and other weapons. Before we head into the next room, do you mind if I just check out one of the axes? It's a Gamorrean guard axe, and I've always wanted to swing one. Here, take a picture of me with this one. Ready? I'm going to pretend like I'm attacking. One, two, three. Sorry, I almost got you there. Uh, we'll just leave that there and move on. What's this at our feet? 
Oh wow, a hidden panel. You can store some weapons or accessories in there. Actually, you can fit a figure in it as well. That's a pretty nice feature, and it's definitely a surprise. Looking at the floor of the barge, you wouldn't even know it was a secret panel. Moving on, we now approach Jabba's throne. Hello, mighty Jabba. We have come today to check out your majestic and impenetrable sail barge. The Jabba figure comes with the barge and is a reissue of the 2015 3 and 3 quarter inch Black Series release. But this one is much nicer, as it has a more realistic paint deco. The ceiling in this room is higher on one side, which makes it easier for characters like a Mana Man and Yak Face to stand. Next to four columns is his throne, which moves slightly to accommodate more figures around him. Although it looks similar to his palace throne, in place of the bowl containing food is a switchboard with a microphone. It's the same microphone C-3PO used to relay Jabba's message to Luke and Han when they were on a skiff over the Sarlacc in Return of the Jedi. On the wall to the left of the throne is what appears to be a mounted piece of artwork. The image is a carving of Jabba surrounded by opulence and female aliens. The artwork was lifted directly from an interior shot of the barge in Return of the Jedi as well, and a bronze Gamorrean guard head statue hangs directly above it. Thank you for having us here today, Jabba. As we approach the back of the barge, we see another area from the film. Two gold walls with golden Rancor arms protruding from their tops house etched panes of glass and create a little booth in the film, like we see here, Max Rebo is playing some music for us on a small keyboard. Above this section is a bronze Rancor statue, which also came from the film. Let's go back past Jabba into the weapons room, to the upper deck. We'll take the staircase. It's one of two that leads to the top of the ship. Wow, it's certainly windy up here. As you can see, above the deck are two large red sails that cover most of the ship. Over there, toward the rear of the barge, you'll see the swiveling cannon that Leia used to destroy the barge before she and Luke fled. You can also take one of the smaller handheld cannons, as some of the skiff guards did in Jedi, and you can mount them along different points of the railing. And speaking of the railing, there's a small removable section where you can recreate C-3PO and R2-D2 escaping the barge before it was blown up by our heroes. There are more screen-accurate gargoyle heads and other elements on the deck that will really help to capture the realism of the barge. And off to the side, over at the front, just above the prison cell, is a button. When you push the button, it opens a trap door above the cell that drops whomever is standing on it. Okay, let's go back to the removable part of the railing. On the count of three, we're going to jump. And as we do, I'm going to press this remote and activate the shrinking ray again. It'll bring us back to our regular sizes. I think. We should be fine. I think. Yeah, no, we should be fine. Oh, and it looks like we picked the perfect time to leave. Ready? 
One, two, three, jump! I bet you didn't think you were going to have that kind of adventure today. February. I had hoped to publish at least one additional episode in January. As I worked feverishly on what I thought would be the second part in the HasLab series, I received a suggestion from a family member that instantly made me change direction. After listening to the Sail Barge episode, my mother came to me with a rather important thought. She said she wanted to know the rest of the story. After all, the first episode explained how the sail barge came to be, how the campaign was formed, and how the project was eventually backed. She wanted to know what collectors thought of the barge once they had received it. She wanted to hear from them, why they wanted one, what made them purchase it, and how it felt to finally own it. I knew she was right. After all, there was a year's gap between when the barge went into production and when it arrived at collector's doorsteps. And I was curious as well. By this point, collectors had owned the barge for three years. And while the general consensus was that it was one of the top Star Wars toys ever produced, I wanted to hear what others really thought of it, especially given the size and price of it. So I took some questions my mother mentioned and came up with some that I had and thought you might have as well. I posted a list of 10 questions on some of the collector groups and asked anyone interested to record their answers and to share them with me. The episode turned out to be a perfect complement to January's Sail Barge episode, giving us a fuller idea of the impact of the HasLab project on Star Wars collectors. It was funny informative, and personal, and I loved hearing my friends and fellow collectors' experiences with the four-foot-long barge. It was one of those joyous moments, a detour that I knew I had to take to tell the rest of the sail barge story, and it turned out to not only be one of the most popular episodes of the year, but one of the most popular episodes of the podcast, and I would attribute that to two main things— how Hasbro's venture resonated with so many of us, and the joy we get in hearing other collectors talk about the collectibles we love. I'd like to share a snippet of the episode with you. Here is my friend Keith from the Star Wars Fan Caves Facebook group as he explains what the barge meant to him and why he campaigned for Hasbro to produce it. For me, it was something special. It was something that I've wanted since seeing Return of the Jedi on opening day in 1983. Star Wars was always big in my family, so my parents gave us all the day off of school on opening day. They brought us, we saw the 10.30 a.m. show. And like most kids back then, as I watched the movie, I'm watching, seeing all the new ships and figures and toys and everything that I saw, I was like, they should make that, they should make that, I hope they make that. And, of course, the barge. But even as a kid, you realize it's kind of unrealistic. It's a huge ship. So how are they going to do it? It's not really possible. So 
while I wanted it, I knew it wasn't really realistic. Then Hasbro came up with HasLab. It's four collectors, it's four things like the barge, something huge that can't go to retail because it's too big. It, you know, it won't sell at retail and then it'll hit clearance and be gone. So they do this HasLab. I see the barge. I was super excited. The first month, they only sold a couple of thousand, and then with 10 days left, they, they were at under 3,500, and they needed 5,000 minimum. So like I said, I'm putting up flyers. I start a Facebook group. I'm trying to get the word out there so everybody knows. And there were, surprisingly, a lot of people that didn't know about it, and the numbers started going up. And then, luckily, the last couple of days, it hits the 5,000 mark. It's going into production. I'm thrilled. Everybody's thrilled. My son was excited. And it was a year wait for the barge. And mine arrived March 3rd, 2019. I actually bought five of them, not because I was looking for an investment or anything like that. I bought one originally. Then I bought a second one, and then when the numbers weren't going up and I wanted to push it to get to 5,000, I bought three more. So I bought five in total, Um, and when they came, it was awesome. The Yak Face figure is great. Yak Face was one of my favorites when I was younger. He was like an urban legend. So to have this new one with the coin on Power of the Force card in the vintage collection line was very cool. I loved it. That's how I felt about the barge. It's something that I wanted since 1983. It's definitely, you know, a must-have for any collector, whether you're vintage, vintage collection, modern, anything. It's just a great ship. It's four feet long. It's it's fantastic. It's well made. Um, so that's that's my story with the barge, and I love it. I have it out displayed. I put lights in it. I have figures set up on it. It's basically a centerpiece of a Star Wars collection. February's second episode was likely the trickiest and most complex episode I've produced. It became the third part in the History of HasLab series, and it focused on the 2020 campaign to make the Razorcrest, the iconic aluminum frame ship from The Mandalorian. In addition to researching the history of Hasbro's Razorcrest, I decided to once again attempt to take you with me for a 10-minute tour through the vehicle. This time I added more of a story to our adventure, one that involved accidental carbon freezings, annoying Jawa scavengers, and flying around the ship with Din Djarin. The episode took about a month to finish, and there were moments in which I was completely overwhelmed by the amount of tracks and information on my computer screen. But it tells the entire story, one that hadn't been told in full previously. And it highlighted the wild success of the Razorcrest with consumers and collectors in a campaign that was fully backed within the first 24 hours. The first three episodes of the History of HasLab series demonstrated how important it is for companies to listen to their consumers and to create products they desire, ones worthy of a premium price tag. 
In this segment from episode 70, titled The History of Hasbro's HasLab, The Mandalorian's Razor Crest Rises, Hasbro designer Chris Reif shared his thoughts on the campaign's success. And Star Wars fans and collectors received a shocking surprise about what Lucasfilm had planned for the famed ship. The second Star Wars HasLab campaign had been an absolute success. In an interview with StarWars.com, Reif reflected on the momentum and the overwhelming interest, saying, Like the rest of the world, we all fell in love with the world of the Mandalorian upon seeing that first episode. We knew we had to create the Razorcrest, and doing it as a HasLab project let us work toward the large and detailed vintage collection piece we all wanted. Mark Boudreau and the team certainly set the bar pretty high for us with Jabba's sail barge. That was an intimidating project to follow. I looked to that vehicle and its level of detail for a lot of guidance and inspiration. I think we've done that legacy justice and delivered beyond expectations for our Razorcrest. It was also a financial win for the company. With 28,115 orders at $350 each, the revenue grossed from the Razorcrest project equated to more than $9.8 million. And most importantly, it was a win for fans of all ages. For those who grew up with the original trilogy or the prequels and were now watching The Mandalorian with their children. For those to whom the characters and life lessons of Star Wars spoke loudly and in a meaningful way. For those to whom the Razorcrest was a symbol of the excitement, vibrancy, and imagination of the current Star Wars stories. For those who in one month would see that beloved Razorcrest completely obliterated. March. Two days before the end of February, Matt George and I began a series that explored the March Hakes Auction 234. Hakes is an auction house that specializes in Americana from the 20th century. In October of 2021, Matt and I looked at the Star Wars items offered in Auction 233, which premiered in November of that same year. After the auction had ended, we noticed that there had been a substantial uptick in both prices and in interest of Star Wars collectibles. And that interest seemed to spread far beyond the growing circle of collectors, and now included a new wave of investors and speculators looking for the next hot item in which to put their funds. For the two of us, doing an episode on March's catalog was a no-brainer. In the months leading up to the auction, following the market trends, we both predicted that it would likely result in record prices for a number of Star Wars figures and prototypes. And the items offered in Auction 234 did not disappoint. There were high-grade 12-backs, which were among the most desirable vintage items at that time. 
and the rest of the carded figures spread across the Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and Power of the Force lines were some of the highest quality examples available publicly, especially in one auction. But the piece that drew the most attention was the rocket-firing Boba Fett prototype figure. A rocket-firing Boba Fett is one of the most iconic toy collectibles in existence, and the fact that this was the rarer J-slot version would set bidding ablaze. And for this first episode covering Auction 234, something very interesting occurred. Matt researched the Rocket Fett further and realized it was the exact same one he had previously owned and sold years earlier. It had since been recased and regraded, this time by a different company, but Matt was able to match it to photos from his original purchase. And this is where the wild month of the Hakes coverage took off for us. Matt had information about this particular prototype and about how these rocket fets were created and sourced that virtually no one else had or had heard. He even saved the information as a surprise for me and read the certificate of authenticity he received from the original owner and Kenner employee. This certificate not only explained the history of the rocket fet, but also answered the question that had been floating around our community for years. Was it really true that rocket fets were given out to trick-or-treaters during Halloween in Cincinnati, during the era of Star Wars toys? Here's the moment that Matt shared this incredible information. All right, so this item, uh, the J-slot here, near and dear to my heart, kind of bittersweet to see this. I, I actually wound up turning this item up uh, from the neighbor of a former Kenner employee who did all the testing on, on the J slots. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of lore out there about how, you know, kids got rocket firing Boba Fett's for Halloween. And that story is absolutely 100% true. The, the guy that worked in the, the testing department's name was Phil Hamilton. And he absolutely wound up giving some to kids for Halloween. Uh, but he also gave two of them to his neighbor, and the neighbor is who I wound up buying these from, or buying this one. He got two of them. I got one. One was in this condition, 50. The other one was, you know, the the tab was intact, and it's a really nice example. I uh, would probably grade 80, 85, but he's keeping it in the family, and uh, I was fortunate enough to get this one piece. But kind of the the a benefit of getting that from the original owner was he got a COA from Phil. Um, so I will read the COA because I think it provides a really good backstory to this piece and what exactly this piece is. Cause I don't think people see it as an engineering pilot. It's to them, it's a, you know, a J slot, but it's actually, this piece was used during testing. And this is, this piece was one of the reasons why it got ultimately scrapped because it kept failing these tests. So anyway, um, here's the COA. I'll read it verbatim. Um, so keep in mind, he, this is, he's writing the COA to the neighbor, uh, for the two pieces that he got. I started with Kenner in 1974 and worked from them until 1987 in various capacities, except for the short time, uh, the short stint I spent with uh, NDM, another firm, which was about nine months or less. But this was well after the time of the first movie. At that time of the first Star Wars movie, I was working as a product reliability technician. I was personally responsible for all of the reliability testing performed on Boba Fett. 
The dolls, eh, hate that term. The dolls in question, which I gave to you, were from the one and only pre-production run that was ever made on the version with the working rocket pack. They were not prototypes made from prototype tooling. They were officially called engineering pilot samples. They were produced from production tooling, and the next phase would have been full production in printed blister cards. These were produced in Hong Kong, and less than 100 working units were shipped to the Sensi testing lab. I received all of them. I was the assigned technician to this project. Many were used in destructive testing. The remaining samples were the sole property of the reliability lab within the product integrity department. Basically, when I finished the testing and wrote up the report, I was free to do with the remaining samples as I wished. Thus, that is how you ended up with two of them. The rest I gave away to other people, and I have no idea who. You were the first to speak up and say that you had two of them. All said and done, when I gave you two of them, there were probably less than 20 that existed at that time. I had all of them. None ever existed in production package. They came to me bulk in a small mail, a small box about the size of a shoebox, each one in a single plastic bag. If someone has one in what appears to be a real printed blister pack, it's a fake. There were never any such thing. As far as the photos are concerned, these are my handwritten numbers. And he's re- referencing the photos that the, uh, the neighbor provided him. This Made is with fascinating. A, yeah, made with a fine point indelible marker to identify each item with my observations and how they correspond with the written test report. What I believe you have is one... A sample number 20 being a numerical sequence of the CA, meaning condition aged. Half of the samples were put through a heat aging process at 135 degrees Fahrenheit for 48 hours before testing. The second one, sample number 6, OA, meaning it was tested without the heat aging process. In other words, right out of the box, no preconditioning. Typically, samples 1 through 15 had no preconditioning and samples 16 through 30 would go through the preconditioning or aging process. Without a doubt, these are the numbers that I applied to the samples for testing. So the one that I got, that number two referenced here, was number six. So on the, if you could see the feet, one would say OA and one would say six. Um, so that was, uh, this particular piece did not go through the, the, the aging process. Uh, process. So it was not put in the oven for 135 degrees Fahrenheit for 48 hours. Right. Um, so this one was used to test the, uh, more than likely to test the rocket firing feature. And it looks like during the testing, the, the tab broke off. So I know that there were two different versions of the J slot. There was like a, a shorter stem and a longer stem. I think this one was the longer stem um, version two. So it was very interesting to see this. There's a lot of really good information here that that I'm glad that I got. Like it, it outlines exactly what the the aging process was and how many of these uh, existed. And and he did confirm the Halloween story. Like later on in the COA, he goes on to this is pretty cool. He goes on to say, uh, "Tell your friend that the Halloween story is true." Because I'd asked about it. Um, <laughs> I had uh, initially, let's see, I had literally bags and bags of the various figure, minifigures, hundreds and hundreds. And yes, it was cheaper than buying candy to give out. I had, kid, <laughs> I had kids going nuts. The word got out, and I think I had every kid in Fairfield ringing my doorbell. 
I did this a few years in a row because we had hundreds of the new items every year. Wow. After they came through uh, the lab for testing or just simple inspection purposes, we couldn't sell them. So it was either put them in the dumpster or in a sack and take them home. Well, none of mine ever went to, into the dumpster. They all found good homes somewhere. Now if I could just find out who got the rest of the fets. <laughs> <laughs> By the time Matt and I were an hour into our conversation, we realized we had only covered only 24 of the almost 300 items in the catalog. And what was originally one or two episodes to be released before the auction ended soon ballooned into a seven-episode series, as Matt and I offered insight, stories, and predictions on the majority of items from the Star Wars segment of the catalog. This Lukoth has a brown torso and what looks like a, a peach or cream-colored head and limbs. And then the Probot has, uh, it's a kind of whitish gray, it says beige plastic, so it's, you know, but it, it looks like a whitish gray beige and um yeah both are really gorgeous yeah so for folks that might not understand why they would be in non-production colors uh, first shots are essentially just they're testing the production molds the tooling to make sure that when they um, inject the plastic into the molds it turns out how they want it so they're just basically test runs um they'll use whatever available plastic is is there at the factory at the time they're doing the test. So um, oftentimes you'll see non-production color figures just because that's what color plastic they had on hand at the time. Episodes 8 and 9 were recorded after the final hammer dropped on Hake's Auction 234. Our goal was to record the results in a way that would highlight some of the surprising sales and to discover some of the larger collecting trends within the hobby. Matt took this recap a step further, producing a spreadsheet that presented specific data as to how certain Star Wars lines and collectibles had performed. He kindly offered the spreadsheet to any listeners who wanted to review the data for themselves. And the information within the spreadsheet brought the conversation to another level, as it gave us clear, factual results that showed us these larger trends. Matt, in one word, how would you describe this auction? Nutty. <laughs> I would have said insane. So, okay, that, that works. Yeah, so we had 288 toy-related items spread across production items, prototypes, pre-production, and display pieces. And of those 288 items, so Taking into account the buyer premium, so the, the final hammer price plus the buyer premium, how many of those 288 items would you say exceeded the low end of the uh, estimated range? Okay, and when you're saying buyer's premium, so what Hakes does is after whatever price the, the item lands at, then Hakes adds an 18% premium on top of that that the buyer pays in addition to the price for the item itself. Um, and then with the estimates, for every item, Hakes puts out an estimate. Uh, some of the estimates range from, say, $400 to $700 or $1,000 to $2,000. So you're asking what percentage without the buyer's premium or with the buyer's premium? With the buyer's premium. So all in. Okay, all in. Plus which ones exceeded the low end of the range? Yep. Gosh. 
I'm going to say, I mean, I honestly don't know. I'm going to guess 52%. 52%. Uh, no, it's a little higher. 87%. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, what percent of those 288 items exceeded the high end of the range? Okay. So the, again, this is for all in with the buyer's premium exceeding the the estimate, the high end of the estimate for each item out of the 288. What percentage? I'm going to say 20%. Close. 48%. Oh <laughs> Basically every other item that ended ended higher than the than the estimate. That is, I, I don't I haven't looked at this level of granularity in the in the numbers before, but I I would be shocked if it was uh, if it was anywhere near that. But the best part of the episodes, and the part I'll always remember when I think back on that time was the fun Matt and I had as two collectors exploring a Star Wars auction together. In total, Matt and I spent more than 14 hours talking about Hake's Auction 234. And for the 10th and final episode in the Hake series, the two of us had the opportunity to speak with a longtime collector who had sold his entire collection in the auction. A few days before the auction ended, Paul McGuire reached out to me. He had heard the episodes Matt and I did and said he was really touched by our passion and reverence for the collectibles, many of which belonged to him. Paul had collected as a solo endeavor for the past 25 years and decided to part with his collection after accidentally dropping and breaking his carded Power of the Force Yak Face figure. Before it dropped, in its pristine condition, it was a $20,000 item. He realized how fragile these items are, and knew that with the rise in prices during the pandemic, he could put the money he received from the auction into a better life for his family. For Matt and me, the conversation with Paul really ended our Hakes 234 series in the best possible way. It was nice to know that the incredible carded figures in the auction had been largely curated by one collector, and that, like us, He had put a lot of time and effort into a hobby he enjoyed for more than two decades. When investing in stocks, analysts warn never to try to time the market. Aiming to buy at a stock's assumed lowest price, or to sell when the stock has reached its peak, can be a fool's errand. However, the incident that caused Paul to part with his collection seemed to come at the right time. He chose the March auction because he saw the prices of Star Wars collectibles rise, and he became one of the lucky few who just so happened to sell everything at the peak of the pandemic collecting craze. And many of the realized prices at the auction's end were record-breaking ones. Here's a clip from that episode in which Paul happily talks about his approach to collecting vintage-carded Star Wars figures. When I was collecting... It really wasn't about uh, what figures were the most important. I know a lot of people have, uh, and um, I-, I loved. I got I got a little bit of direction when I first started collecting. Make sure you know what you're collecting. What kind of collection are you going to put together? Are you going to try to be a completionist and get all of the figures? Are you going to try and get all the Luke's, all the this, all the that? 
Um, and my thing was just to try and get all the first releases of all the figures that were released. Uh, and that was that was a really uh, a good one because that's that made the General Maydeen, for example, as important to me as Snaggletooth or whatever, right? Yes, and a lot of people don't understand that, but it's true. If you're if you're chasing the the figures appearing on these debut cards, as you said, General Maydeen becomes just as important, and these ones that are secondary and tertiary characters all of a sudden become main characters for your collection. And harder, and some of them are harder to find because nobody cared about them at all. April. After focusing on the Hakes auction for the entire month of March, I wanted to shift the podcast away from the market and values of the collectibles and more toward the connective and community elements of our hobby. From the collecting community's perspective, the Hakes auction was a divisive event. The focus on sales and the people piling into the hobby looking to profit from it frustrated a lot of collectors. And many sellers used the price results from the auction to set the current prices, which was both unrealistic and created a frenzy to land and flip these seemingly white-hot items. And while looking at prices and values of collectibles is a part of our hobby, to many, connecting with other collectors is a much larger and more meaningful part. My goal for the April shows was to bring the focus back to the parts many of us love, regardless of the Star Wars toy market performance. And the areas I wanted to highlight were the toy shows, the collecting clubs, and conversations with friends who share a similar passion for the hobby. For the first April episode, I recapped my trip to the first toy show of the year, the one that generally caps off the toy show season for me and for many collectors in the tri-state area. ZoloCon is held in a former NASA centrifuge in Warminster, Pennsylvania. The building is immensely impressive, and it boasts a wide variety of collectibles with a heavy focus on vintage toys from the 20th century. I've purchased carded Star Wars figures there over the years, along with special items, like a double-telescoping Luke Skywalker, one of the rarer Clone Wars figure sets, modern Hasbro prototypes, and more Kenner accessories than I can count. And since it's the first time many collectors are together again, a day at ZoloCon becomes more than a toy show. In the middle of the day, a group of us meet at a restaurant down the street, where we can sit and catch up with one another, away from the bustle of the show floor. And after a long and challenging winter, this year's ZoloCon ushered in a welcome return to the normalcy I and many of my fellow collectors craved. And the chance to spend time together and to laugh together while hunting for toys is what we truly missed. And ZoloCon has a history of turning up some special pieces, in episode 8 of the podcast, detailing my trip to the 2019 ZoloCon event, I talked about finding a rare X-Wing Target Aces game that was actually addressed to George Lucas. And this past year was no different. My friend, the wonderful Mark Ryan, found one of the larger items from the Kenner Star Wars line, amazingly still sealed in its box. So yeah, I picked up a sealed uh, Imperial Shuttle. It's probably the nicest one I've ever seen in person. And uh, 
one of the nicest box periods as far as uh, you know vintage Star Wars. It's sealed, clear tape, clear tape. Um, I posted it on my pages uh, and on my own personal Facebook page. <laughs> so, I almost I almost ran out of my house and jumped in my car yesterday when I saw that. Yeah, I got a lot of messages like yeah, about imagine. it. So, uh, but yeah, so that's just going to go up on my shelf. Just hopefully the pop, the tape never pops. <laughs> right? <laughs> that, it's the scariest thing, but when you have one that's that nice where the tape... Because I, I checked the whole box, you know, the photos and oh, everything, yeah. and it looks really solid. So you should be good, but um, my I, gosh, what a pickup. I heard if you run duct tape over the clear tape, it'll hold it down. That's a really <laughs> good idea. Then you put masking tape right around the, the sides. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and then... <laughs> it's a uh, horrible idea. I picked up a... Uh, had a friend brought me a box of stuff and it was just random stuff and he's like I just want to get rid of it so he gave me the price he wanted I paid for it and um and now that I've been talking to you you've been helping me investigate some stuff there's some pretty cool stuff in there that I didn't know yeah you made my morning because you came over to me and you were like hey I got a box of prototypes and stuff do you want to go through it and see and I was like yes that's that's my Christmas yeah yeah so there was I think there's Kenner starting lineups Couple, a couple Star Wars ones, mm-hmm. and then the um, were the photos. They were uh, like Kenner slash Hasbro era photos of the early Power of the Force two stuff. Um, I shouldn't say early. Well, early like ninety was Dash Rendar ninety six. Yeah, middle ninety. Ninety eight. Yeah. Um, and then uh, yeah, and then you have a, a Han Hoth hard copy, which is a pretty big deal too. Uh, you also have. Uh, a large. I'm gonna. I think it's like the Epic Force Han. That's what I. It, that's the yeah, I think. Yeah, and then um, you also have a, a first shot, which I believe is a Han from either 2002 or 2004. Sort of that that Sarlacc scene. Um, yeah. When he, uh, yeah, he's got the the, the chains. The chains on. Yeah. Him, yeah. So. So yeah, that was cool. I didn't really. You did all the footwork <laughs> finding that out for me because I just threw it in there and said, "Hey, here, David." <laughs> hey, it was fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. At the beginning of April, a friend asked me a collecting question that seemed to pop up a lot at the time. He told me he had completed a years-long run and wondered what he should collect next. It was a logical question, and one that many collectors face once they've achieved their collecting goals. And my answer to him was to collect nothing. I suggested waiting until something came along that piqued his curiosity and grabbed his attention, and to build up a war chest of spending funds in the meantime. Often, we can fall into a collecting trap. We look for things to chase to continue the highs that come with the hunt and with acquiring pieces. Collectors can sometimes define themselves by what they add to their collections, and when they're not pursuing items or not purchasing ones, they can feel a little bit lost at times. As I thought about this more and more, I wanted to do an episode that addressed some questions collectors might have. And with so many newer collectors entering the hobby, I wanted to help them navigate their way through the world of collecting Star Wars memorabilia. Episode 82, which was released in the middle of April, was titled, How to Start Collecting Vintage Star Wars Figures and Prototypes, and More Questions Answered. I wrote up a list of questions that I had heard from others, as well as ones that people presented in some of the collector groups on social media. And as I stated in the episode, my answers were not definitive, but were suggestions based on my experiences over the years. 
When it came to collecting vintage figures and prototypes, I wanted to supply a list of helpful resources, such as books, websites, podcasts, and apps, published by collectors within our community. My hope for the episode was to provide a thoughtful and measured approach to the collecting questions we face, especially as the hype surrounding Star Wars toys was reaching peak levels. I wanted to share bits of knowledge that would assist collectors at any point in the year and beyond. Here is an excerpt from episode 82. If I had one final piece of advice to give to you, I would say, ignore the noise. Ignore the skyrocketing prices, the hype of record-breaking auctions, the fervor to grab whatever becomes available on eBay and on the collecting groups, and the envy at the latest hauls by other collectors. The noise and simply focus on the goals you've set for yourself with your collection and on connecting with those around you. The hobby is meant to be enjoyed. It's an escape from the stresses and uncertainties of life and something into which we can pour our passion. It's a Zen garden in the midst of a constantly shifting world. There will always be someone with a bigger score, someone with more money who can easily buy a piece you've wanted for a while, And that's okay. The collecting realm is not perfect. As long as there is a profit to be made in vintage Star Wars collectibles, elements like ego, greed, and deceit will always find their way into the room. But it doesn't have to be like that for you. Seeking out the joyful and passionate people in the community is one of the best things you can do. I've found that when I shift my focus from acquiring things to acquiring meaningful friendships, the figures and prototypes do eventually come my way, but they become a bonus to something greater. Collecting Star Wars pieces can result in a series of great life lessons. After all, it constantly asks, what type of person do you want to be? And it gives you choices with each step. Do you want to be part of something bigger Or are you happy to collect on your own? Is collecting a main aspect of your life as it is sewn into your DNA? Or is it something on the outskirts of your personality, something you do casually? Are you collecting for the short term or for the long term? And then it tests your character. Are you someone others can trust? Do you have a heart for those around you? Do you look to help others, or are you focused solely on what you can gain from the hobby? Are you comfortable with who you are? Do you appreciate the blessings you've been given? And are you happy? It's okay if some of those questions made you uncomfortable. Some make me uncomfortable too. We're all imperfect, we're all still learning, and we're all trying to navigate our way through life. But exploring these questions and the ones I covered earlier is a good start. And whether you're taking your first steps into collecting or you've been in the hobby for a while, these questions are healthy ones. Hopefully they address some of the questions you have, or at the least give you insight into what some of your peers are experiencing. Let's help one another and make the hobby something special. The final two episodes of April were really special ones. 
The first was a conversation with Empire State Club co-founder Tom Quinn. Tom is a dear friend of mine. We chatted a few days before he hosted the first club meetup of the year at his home in upstate New York. 2022 marked the 10-year anniversary of the Empire State Star Wars Collectors Club. I can't stress the importance or the impact of a local collecting club like this. And Tom has been one of the people that has shaped the club over the decade. He made it a place where any collector would feel welcome. And he made each event more connective and more fun. Tom's an incredibly thoughtful guy. He's thoughtful in the sense that he cares deeply for others, but he's also very introspective. He's thought a lot about the life he's lived so far, as well as about the life he's experiencing now and in the future. So it was great to hear about how he became a Star Wars fan at a young age, and how that fandom shifted toward collecting the relics of his childhood in his adult years. We spoke for more than an hour, and it was one of those conversations that you come away from feeling more appreciative of life and of a friend like him. And for me, when I thought of you listening to that episode, the driving force that kept running through my mind was a simple one. I want you to get to know my friend Tom. Here's a little piece of that gem of a chat. The things that, that we collect, I... I... I have talked to you before about the fact that I started collecting for nostalgia reasons, that I have a very fond memory of my childhood and the toys that I played with and how Star Wars was its own uh, universe for me that I wanted to, to plunge headlong into. And through the years, I've accumulated all the toys that either I had as a kid or I wanted or if I knew they existed as a kid, I would have wanted. But uh, through the years, it's transitioned into all the friendships that I've gotten along the way that now are more important to me and more cherished uh, than the actual toys. Um, looking at the toys, it still connects me with my childhood and my friends, but uh, it really... It really is about the friendships that uh, that I, I get. So things like celebration or our club meetups are really about uh, time that I get to spend with people. You know, uh, people I don't get to spend as much time as I would like to. Our lives tend to be very busy. Um, we start out this hobby very much by, you know, it's a very solitary uh Thing. At least it was for me, you know, going on to eBay or going to uh, conventions and not knowing anyone. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, through the years, it's like, oh, I get to spend time with David. And that, that becomes the most important thing. During the weekend of Tom's meetup, or as we called it, TomCon, I drove upstate the day before. Tyler Fedigan, another Empire State Club member and dear friend, had invited me to his house. Tyler and I met at Star Wars Celebration Orlando during the Friday Night Room Sales event in 2017, and we became friends pretty quickly. I had never been to Tyler's house and had never seen his collection in person. So on the Friday evening before TomCon, we had dinner together, and then he took me on a tour of his collection. 
Tyler's collection is unlike anything I've ever seen. It focuses on the entirety of the Star Wars Kenner line. And what makes it so special is the way he has arranged the figures, playsets, and vehicles. The items are on smaller shelves across the four walls of his basement room. They're set up in little dioramas that are reminiscent of the images found on the Kenner packaging and in the catalogs that came with the toys. And Tyler has a genuine love for the line. As we viewed each piece in his collection, he shared personal stories about how he acquired them and what they meant to him. It is through the toys that Tyler and I became friends, and seeing his collection in person gave me a truer understanding of who he was and what he loved. My favorite piece in Tyler's collection was one that showcased the full run of Kenner figures against the iconic yellow background seen on many of the cardbacks. I asked Tyler about the case, a large wooden one with a glass front, with a narrow supplemental case on each side, and he explained the significance behind it. And then we will close with a gorgeous piece. I, I don't know how this was crafted or where you got it, but so you basically have... Um, all of the figures from the Kenner Star Wars line, and you have it in a case, one large rectangular case, uh, and then it each you have like a, a thinner rectangle on either side, and they all have that yellow staircase uh, that we're so familiar with, you know, from the backs of the cards. Uh, it says Star Wars underneath it with, in the logo, and again, just another well lit, beautiful case. Did somebody make this for you? Yes. So that. Um, my father built that whole thing, but at different times. So um, again, I was I was displaying from the early '80s on uh, card back scenes and and Kenner scenes, um, and my dad knew that. So and he knew that I was starting to put together a good collection of complete figures. So for my 18th birthday, he surprised me and built me that center, the center portion of that case. Mm. And it just was, you know, I, you know, you get certain memories that like get locked in. I mean, that I remember seeing that for the first time, just bl being blown away. Um, at that time, I could only fill up to the bottom row. So I didn't have, um, I only had about 50 complete characters. Um, but he's, my dad is, you know, I mentioned earlier, he's an amazing craftsman. He builds beautiful train layouts um, that uh, echo the, the era of his toys. So, you know, 30s and 40s. Um, and you can see he like, he was able to see artistically that those yellow stairs had like an orange hue at the bottom because of the way the shadows were. So he was able to do some sort of spray painting to create that fade or that um, I don't know what they call it that ombre ombre yeah, ombre, yeah. yeah. effect yeah. between the two colors mm -hmm. um, and then for so that was on my 18th birthday exactly 18 years later on my 36th birthday he built me the two supplemental cases to go on the ends because by that time I did have a full run a, a complete run of uh, Star Wars figures and they seem to fit 15 figures each in the supplemental cases as well too so Right. Yep. So yeah. So I was thirty. Yeah, I, I needed thirty more spots. So it, it, the math worked out. As long as I put blue snag up it with, you know, I cheated and put the blue snag next to the red snag. Um, but yeah, it worked out. I could do fifteen in each case, and that would get one of every character except the band. Mm -hmm. 
and it, it really is just such a beautiful way to to highlight these figures and to display them and the fact that this these cases came from your dad I think you know you're probably going to cherish them for the rest of your life that's yeah I mean if I I have a lot of special things in my collection but if you ask me to narrow down to just one thing I think it would have to be those cases you know with with you know the just the one full run of figures is is uh, yeah super special may the vintage collection archive edition book was well worth the wait Two and a half years after the Kickstarter campaign ended, the book finally arrived at my doorstep. And D. Martin Myatt and Rich Allott crafted the definitive resource for Hasbro's beloved Vintage Collection line. In many ways, the Vintage Collection is a bridge between the Vintage Kenner figures and the modern Hasbro ones. Hasbro used the Kenner designs and packaging as its model for the new hyper-articulated figure line and the book highlighted many of the fascinating Kenner connections, especially when it came to the original packaging art. I thoroughly enjoyed exploring the book and wanted to cover it in an episode to bring it to the attention of a wider collecting audience. The book set a new standard for what an action figure resource could be. For the Hasbro collectors, it presented the vintage collection in its entirety including all the toys produced between 2010 and 2019, and showcase some of the ideas that never made it to retail. And for the Kenner collectors, it contained nuggets of information about the original line that I have never seen elsewhere. So I came up with 12 short topics that I learned from reading the Vintage Collection Archive Edition. Here is an excerpt from Episode 85. Saying our goodbyes to vac-metalized. One of the keys to making the droids of the Kenner universe appear as they did in the film was through a process called vacuum metalization. Vac-metalizing gave an action figure a chrome coating by applying a thin coat of aluminum in the form of metal vapors. To color the aluminum, a layer of paint was applied over the metal during the process of metalizing. The three most recognizable examples of this technique were found on the gold body of C-3PO, the silver frame of the Death Star droid, and in R2-D2's dome. In the early 2000s, Hasbro continued to create figures with vac-metalized parts, including the C-3PO and R2-D2 for the original trilogy collection. But in 2007, Hasbro deemed vac metalization both too costly and too environmentally unsound, and discontinued the practice. This year marks the 15th anniversary of Ahsoka Tano's introduction into the Star Wars canon. And during the pandemic, I started a chat group with five other Ahsoka collectors, that is still going strong more than two years later. What began as a place for Fons Napolitano, Will Russ, FJD Robertus, Chris Letty, Clifton Boggs, and me to talk about all things related to Ahsoka and Star Wars soon turned into something deeper. Fons labeled our group the Ahsokaholics, and together we've had some wonderful adventures 
and have created some lasting memories. For this Ahsokaholics episode, I wanted my friends to share where they were in each of their individual collecting journeys, and if their focus had changed over the past few months. I also wanted to use this downtime, as we waited for more news about the Ahsoka live-action series to surface, to see where they thought the character would go, and how the fanbase would evolve. During the chat, I asked the group to share an Ahsoka story or scene they'd like to see in a future series. Here is Fonz's answer. It's an interesting take, and one that has a pretty good chance of materializing later this year. So this is a weird question for me. Um, And I think I'm going to see it because they've set it up. But so you have, you know, I was an original trilogy kid. So, you know, I saw Star Wars in the theater and, you know, started collecting the toys in 1978. Um. And then, you know, I experienced the dark times and, and one of the, 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 the great things about the dark times was the heir to the empire series. And I read that and I, you know, I have the first edition of every one of those Timothy Zahn books and I read them and, you know, really, you know, really liked the grand admiral Thrawn character. So it'll mean a great deal to me to see this character that I've known since God, it was probably 1990 three maybe 1992 when heir to the empire came out to see this character that i really you know this character that i really like grand admiral thrawn interact with um you know this character that i really like from 2009 you know Sokotano. so um you know as as a guy that's been you know through the original trilogy and the dark times and the prequel trilogy and the, the sequel trilogy. And now, you know, where we're at with Disney, um, I think it'll be, it'll be very fulfilling to see those two characters interact and, you know, how a character that I was introduced to in 1992 can interact with a character that I was introduced to in 2009 or 2010. And it's completely normal. I published the Asokaholics episode on Sunday, May 22nd. And as I sat down to eat a late dinner, the idea for the next episode suddenly struck me. The week of the Star Wars Celebration Convention in Anaheim was approaching, and Disney would be premiering the first episodes of the new Obi-Wan series on its Disney Plus streaming service. I remember saying to myself, It would have been interesting to know the history of the Obi-Wan series, and how it all started. I wish I had done an episode leading up to the premiere. And at once, a feeling of dread and excitement clashed over my head like a thundercloud. Disney planned for a Friday release of the first two episodes of the series, and instantly, I knew I would be researching the Obi-Wan series for the rest of the night. I stayed up until one o'clock that morning, devouring as much information as I could find. The dread came from the fact that I only had four days until the show's premiere. I knew Lucasfilm originally intended to make the Obi-Wan story a standalone film, in the vein of 2016's Rogue One. 
But after the slumping box office performance of 2018's solo film, Kathleen Kennedy shifted to a series in the hopes of bulking up the upcoming Disney Plus streaming service. What I discovered was a history that was far messier, far more complicated, and far more secretive than anyone knew. And in 2019, lead actor Ewan McGregor was finally able to shed that secret that he kept for years. That he would return to the Star Wars universe as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Here's Ewan talking to Conan O'Brien about donning the Jedi robes again. It's exciting. It's exciting because I can finally say that I'm doing it. It's been years of pretending that, oh, I don't know. Well, because I get asked all the time. Every time I do an interview, it always comes up. You know, would you, would you do it again? And there's all this speculation. And I had to just lie because they don't, they, you know, the studios and the franchise, they want to keep everything secret. And right. I understand that. But... It comes down to me in a situation where I'm having to actually lie to people and say, well, I, I don't know, I, I would be up for it if they ever want to do it. And, it started, and you've known for years now, yeah. I, well, we've been talking about it for a long time. But it started looking like I was sort of trying to tout for the job. Like yeah. I was trying to get the, get the job as Obi-Wan again, you yeah. know, at Disney's door, saying, hello, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm available. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> would you, uh, you know, I mean, famously, you had to take over this role that was immortalized by the great Alec Guinness, yeah. and you did this remarkable job, and so much time has gone by. Do you feel like you're, 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 you're getting closer? Yes. Not even near to the age that Alec Guinness was thank, when he did it. Thank, thank you goodness. for that. Yeah, thank you. Bless you. Alec Guinness was, I think, 140 when he That's did right. it. <laughs> That's right, right. But, um, but at least you've had more life experience. You yeah. can really play him at a different period in life. Yes. I mean, the, the most satisfying thing about those films, other than the, some of the fight sequences, which were amazing to do, was, was the study of Alec Guinness and trying to, trying to be believably him as a younger man. That yeah. was, as an acting challenge, that was the, the most satisfying thing about those movies. And so now that's the same, except I'm just closer to the age he was when he played that film. So it'll be interesting to, to play him now. And also it being post you know, plot-wise, the three films that I made already, it's after that, obviously. Right, so you so have... So there's, there's a bit of story plot there. That there's a nice arc that you yes. can play with. I hope so. Somehow, I managed to publish the episode by Thursday evening, the first day of Star Wars Celebration. I had wanted it to be an exciting surprise for my friends and fellow Star Wars fans. But Disney surprised all of us, premiering the Obi-Wan show a few hours early for a Thursday night release. I still don't know how I released that episode on time. There were so many things happening with my family at that point, and I think working on the podcast was a much-needed escape. I had decided not to go to Star Wars Celebration in Anaheim this year, and although it was a tough decision initially, it really was the right one for me. And all of this was confirmed as my grandmother went into hospice at the start of Celebration. In the months leading up to the convention, I had made peace with not going, and I felt good about my decision. That is, I was fine with it until the day the event kicked off, live from Anaheim. I watched a live stream of the panels, interviews, and Star Wars moments from home, 
and felt the pangs of missing out as my friends filled social media with photos and videos capturing their unforgettable experiences. But an idea hit me. In the midst of the chaos happening here at home, and in not being able to be with my friends to witness another celebration, I realized I was in a unique position. I reached out to as many collectors as possible, asking them if they would record a segment live from the weekend. I would serve as a home base for the overall experience, and my goal was to take their recordings, along with moments from the panels and events, and to put them together in an audio scrapbook. Instead of focusing on the fact that I couldn't be there, I shifted my perspective. I was able to do something for my friends, which was to compile their experiences into an episode that would serve as a souvenir of that collector's weekend. The toughest part of doing something like that is that you cannot control the contributions. You can ask people to send you recordings from an event, but your episode is only as strong as what you receive. By Thursday, I had nothing. I was working on recounting the important panels and telling the major stories of each day, but I had to be patient and trust that eventually I would receive at least a handful of recordings I could string together. And then, a true blessing occurred. The first ones came in on Friday afternoon. John Peck and Yehuda Kleinman recorded a funny bit as they were walking into the venue. Mike DiStefano sent me updates beginning with his car ride to the airport to travel out to the West Coast. Glenn Williams gushed about the incredible Ahsoka trailer and the return of the Rebels crew. Jason Wilsuko recapped his pickups from the convention. Jim Jones recounted a special collector's dinner that could only happen at a place like Celebration. F.J.D. Robertus, a fellow Ahsoka-holic, shared his experience meeting Ashley Eckstein for the first time. Will Russ, another wonderful Ahsoka-holic, allowed us to experience the feeling of arriving at the convention. Elon Bartlett graciously sent me a bunch of videos from his time on the show floor and at the panels. He also thoughtfully sent me ambient recordings as well ones that captured the sounds around him that he figured I might find helpful. Steve Renzi sent me a clip at 4.30 Saturday morning in which he and Bill Cable extolled the virtues of the American drinking team with a little help from the evening sponsor, alcohol. Dan Uthman recorded a truly beautiful moment of reflection outside the venue in front of the fountain. And Gordy Owen brought something incredibly special to the episode as well. On the final day, he acted as roving reporter, interviewing a number of collectors. Here's Gordy speaking with longtime collector and the head of Rancho Obi-Wan, Steve Sansweet. All right, Gordy, check it in again for the uh, roving uh, reporter for Prototypes and Production here with Steve Sansweet. I'm uh, going to hit Steve with the two questions. So, Steve, what was your favorite moment of celebration this year? Well, it actually just happened. We put a lot of effort into the Rancho Obi-Wan Saga Museum uh, exhibit, and I got to lead Dave Filoni through a very quick tour, but it was great. Dave's an old friend, and we have a piece of his doodle art up on the wall, which he sort of remembered. That is excellent, and it's been so fun to see his uh, career progress. Um, And what was your favorite swag uh, um, item or project uh, this celebration? 
Well, I just heard Duncan Jenkins answer that question, and I'm going to say the same thing. When I saw it online, the Woolrow Hood ice cream patches, and then I didn't realize that the Georgia Alliance and Iran had done so many other things like the silver scoop and the container and additional patches and an ice cream server's hat, paper hat. And, I mean, just very creative and amazing. It was nonstop. Excellent, excellent. Steve, thanks for taking a minute. I'll let you get back to it. Thank you so much, guys. If you enjoyed that episode, please know that it wouldn't have happened without the kindness of our friends. And that kindness really affected me as well. In covering the convention from home and through my friend's funny and connective recordings, my brain was somehow tricked into believing that I had flown out to California and that I had spent the weekend with all of them. To this day, I still feel like I attended Star Wars Celebration. And again, that only happened through these kind-hearted collectors. To them, I say, that episode means more to me than I can verbalize, and it was such a joy to experience it through your words and through your recordings. Thank you. And I'll leave you with a clip that makes me laugh every time I listen to it. Live from Anaheim, it's John Peck and Yehuda Kleinman. We, we are live at Star Wars Celebration Anaheim. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. <laughs> We are here enjoying our days, looking for prototypes from new toys, toys that might not have even been thought of yet. Prototypes that are conceptual, prototypes that I... I and the collecting track has all prototypes, track. right? It's all prototypes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And production, too. There's a lot of production stuff, There's too. production stuff, too, and, uh, you know... You know, we're, we're recording things for David because he asked us to. David, and, and, and David, I uh, just want to give you, this is, by the time you get this, is going to be really, really important information. Tell everyone that they're actually at a Star Trek convention. Well, that's why we're really here. That's so this was the filming site for Picard. Yes. And we are here in front of the Anaheim Convention Center, which was Starfleet Academy. Yes. So really, everybody doesn't understand that they're actually here. They're all traders, they're, right? They're, all, they're trekkers. Yeah, they're trekkers, traders. They're trekkies and traders. <laughs> And, 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 they're, this, and they're trading at the swap meet, too. They have, yes. And they're going to go to Trader Sam's, Correct. too. Correct. In fact, I actually saw a lot of people with pointy ears. This, this whole thing is a sham. So. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Yep, I saw Kirk with the green chick before, <laughs> Orion Slave Girl. I mean, it's it's it, it's wacky. It's it, weird, it's wild it's stuff. It's weird, wild, and wacky stuff. Yeah, so... Uh, we wish you were here, David. We miss you, David. Yeah, you know, so. it's not the same without you, but... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll make sure we'll give you stupid commentary so yes, you can we'll put it on the podcast. Yes, we'll give you good material. I, I think it's going to turn people away. You might get, like, you might, yeah. yeah. You might, might want to edit this. Out. You know what? Forget. Don't send this, John. Yeah, you know, yeah. For, yeah. You might lose a few listeners. Yeah, but, you know, well, but. you know. But, uh, okay. Here right. we go. We're the only ones awake. Everybody else is still hungover. Yes, yeah. All right. Beam, beam <laughs> me up, Scotty. <laughs> June. I didn't release any episodes during the month of June. I couldn't. The truth is, I had been sick for the first three or four months of 2022, and after finally starting to feel better in April, May, June, and July pummeled me, as it seemed to take out almost every member of my family. 
and as I was dealing with a series of really intense situations, I didn't have the energy to produce a podcast episode. Months later, it's really difficult to reflect upon that time. But I was somehow able to do so for the first episode of the second half of the year, in the July episode I did with Matt covering the Hake special event Star Wars auction. Honestly, I tried to listen to it again, and I still can't. But I couldn't finish the episode without including it. So I'm going to wait here while you walk back through what had happened during those months. Here's the clip from the introduction to that episode. How were the past two months for you? I went through what people of faith sometimes call a season. Figuratively, it was a fall from what seemed to be a very tall tree, and I hit every branch on the way down. My family is cursed. That's what I thought to myself at times. For that joyous Star Wars holiday, May the 4th, I began the month by getting into a car accident. A few days later, I found myself in the waiting area of the emergency room after taking my father to the hospital at 3 o'clock in the morning on Mother's Day for an unrelated but urgent situation. We went to two more hospitals for tests and doctor's visits, and he wound up staying at the third hospital for surgery. For the next two or three weeks, my mother took care of him, and I tried to do whatever I could to take the pressure off of my mother. Those days were tough, and it was hard to see my father suffering. A week or two after that, my aunt fell at her house. My mom and I, in addition to taking care of my father, now added taking care of my aunt to our lists. As my father started to heal, Star Wars Celebration was about to begin. I had planned to attend it, but opted out of it for this year, and likely wouldn't have been able to go or to stay anyway. Because that Friday, my family got word that my grandmother, one of my heroes, stopped eating and drinking. At the amazing age of 101 years old, her body was finally failing her, and she went into hospice. For a week, any time the phone would ring, I tense up, assuming it would be the call. The weight of the month started to weigh on me, and I couldn't focus on anything. A lot of it was a blur, as I was running as many errands as I could for the rest of my family members. I tried to be there for my mom, and by the grace of God, she experienced what I can only describe as the perfect farewell, getting two hours alone with her mother, holding her and receiving hug after hug from her. The COVID virus that had snaked into every nook and corner of the globe finally made its way into my grandmother's nursing home the day after my mom was with her, blocking any of us from seeing her again. And a few days later, we finally got the call. I dreaded the day of the funeral, of finally saying goodbye to a woman who shaped who I am, what I believe, and how I treat others. But it was a perfect day, a day of peace, a bright spot in an otherwise darkened month. On Father's Day weekend, my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, was coaching their son's little league game, jumped up to clear a ball from the top corner of a fence, and landed on a baseball, fracturing his foot. One by one, my family members were being sidelined, and my mother and I joked about one of us being next. Less than a week later, my mom and dad went to see my nephew's Little League game. 
the team was dangerously close to being eliminated, and my parents wanted to cheer on my nephew. As my mother walked across the parking lot, she suddenly blacked out and fell backward. She described the feeling as hitting her head and thinking she cracked it open, and then feeling the impact on her back and thinking it was broken. She spent the week in the hospital. The doctors gave her test after test to see what caused it, and to figure out the extent of the damage. I haven't really processed this part yet, because she only came home yesterday. All I can say is that if there is a breaking point, I feel like I'm familiar with its shape now, its rhythm, its cadence. But as crazy and as harrowing as things have been at times, the friends I've met in this hobby have been true lights, true beacons. You try to be there for others, but when you're at your weakest, the love that your friends show you means so much, and it humbles you and lifts you up at the same time. Whether it was a package filled with mementos from the celebration I missed, or an Ahsoka shirt or figure, a chat in person or on Zoom, or the phone calls and text messages from friends checking up on me, every single one of them came at just the right time and helped me in ways I don't know if I'll ever be able to properly express. And fortunately, by the end of August, life seemed to ease quite a bit. My family members recovered, and we grew closer as a family from the experience. I learned a lot during that time. About myself, about the deep kindness of friends, and how to help others. And I really try to be more thankful for everything around me, and more appreciative of those who are in my life. So that was the first half of 2022, from a collector's perspective. It was a challenging year, and the podcast really was an anchor for me. It gave me the opportunity to focus on positive and creative things, and to be consistent, especially during the times in which the ground around me was shaky, and there was very little consistency in my life. Exploring Star Wars and collecting in the first half of 2022 was really exciting. And the second half was just as exciting, but in so many different and unique ways. I hope you'll join me for part two as we look back on the second half of a Star Wars-filled year on Star Wars, Prototypes and Production.